one of those challenges that we are particularly concerned about is finding ways to pay for this ambition. Currently, we know that there's a 700 billion funding gap between what we spend to protect nature every year and what we need to be spending. Investors who are investing in different projects and the investors, you know, there's a mix of what they expect in return. And so, you know, this is not the, you're not investing in a tech stock here, so you're never going to get that kind of returns, but it fits in a balanced portfolio where you actually want to do some good. Bain Sustainability Academy, a podcast by Bain and Company. Welcome to the Bain Sustainability Academy, a podcast by Bain and Company in which sustainability experts discuss present and future opportunities, but also challenges of sustainable transformations. I am Stefan Werner. I'm a Bain partner in the Zurich office. And today's topic is conservation finance. My guests today are Marianne Kleiberg from the Nature Conservancy in Berlin and my Bain partner colleague Sam Israelit from San Francisco. Marianne, you're leading TNC's European chapter since 2014 and have been in the field with TNC in the Caribbean for many years before. In our Zoom calls in the past, your quite colorful paintings behind you on the wall in your office always draw my attention. What have you currently put up there? And has there been a specific reason for particularly this picture? So thank you, Stefan, for inviting me to the podcast. Unfortunately, you cannot see the painting that I have behind me, but it is a very colorful painting on silk, and it comes from Mexico. And I lived for 10 years in Mexico in the early 2000s. And those years were very formative for me as I established the Nature Conservancy's first conservation programs in the Gulf of California. And then I worked very closely with fishing communities, tourism associations, the government and local conservation groups to protect one of the most critical seascapes in the world. So I really appreciated how hard it is to get conservation done on the ground in the field. So this painting reminds me of all of that hard work, also about the fun times I had in Mexico. I now live in Berlin, which is quite gray compared to Mexico in the winter particularly. So I just also love to have some color in my life. That indeed sounds colorful. And I recently read on your LinkedIn profile that you enjoy racing and like high speed from electric power, of course. When was the last time you could uh, let it all out? So Stefan, I had the great pleasure of attending a Formula E race in Berlin just a couple of months ago. Now, Formula E is the electric version of Formula One. And it was so exciting to see all the cars and the drivers up close And then I had the very fortunate opportunity to go on a test run of the course in a Porsche Taycan Turbo that went from zero to 100 in 2.8 seconds. And wow, was that thrilling. <laughs> Sam, you are with Bain since the year 2000. Actually, it seems you covered practically all industries in those more than two decades. But I know your passion is in environmental protection and in leading our environmental practice since many years. 
And you are an organic farmer yourself, right? Yes. Tell us a bit more about your hobby, or, or is it even more than just a hobby? Well, these things have a way of taking on a life of their own. Yes, my wife and I have a sustainable farm in Central Coast region of California where we raise olives. Uh, we produce a super premium brand of extra virgin olive oil. And uh, it's a nice, fun little side business that has allowed me to kind of get out and it helps me relieve stress. I had a client once who told me that some of his best ideas came while he was driving his tractor, and I've found that to be very true. So it's been fun to go taking a piece of property that didn't really have any sustainable practices on it and convert it to an organic farm. That sounds awesome. And I imagine that can be uh, really stress relieving. Now, the topic of today's podcast is financing 30 by 30. 30 by 30 stands for the ambition to protect 30% of Earth's land, freshwater, and oceans by 2030. This ambition has been set by the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People of now over 90 countries. Also by the Convention on Biological Diversity and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We would like to illuminate which role the financial industry can play in this and in how far 30 by 30 represents a business opportunity for the finance industry. Marianne, how is the Nature Conservancy involved in this global ambition and what steps did you already take? So at TNC, we know that the science is quite clear, that we have years, not decades, to address the interconnected impacts of climate change and rapid biodiversity loss. And we know that what we do between now and 2030 will really determine our ability to address these immense challenges, while at the same time providing enough food, water, and energy for growing numbers of people. And this calls for a highly innovative and collaborative approach, because we need to quickly find and deliver the most ambitious solutions. And one of the most important questions that we deal with is how to fund the transition to a nature-positive economy at both land, water, and sea. So as you mentioned, Stefan, that later this year, representatives from countries around the world will meet at the UN Convention of Biological Diversity to agree on a new global framework to guide biodiversity protection for the rest of this decade. We call this a new deal for nature. We have very high hopes for this ambitious framework, but there are a lot of challenges. And one of those challenges that we are particularly concerned about is finding ways to pay for this ambition. Currently, we know that there's a 700 billion funding gap between what we spend to protect nature every year and what we need to be spending. And this is according to a landmark report that we developed with the Nature Conservancy, the Paulson Institute, and the Cornell Center for Sustainability. So to close this nature funding gap and to help halt and potentially reverse the global decline of biodiversity, we really need to focus on innovative financing strategies for nature and also to support the sustainable livelihoods of people. So at the Nature Conservancy, we are focused on facilitating this type of financing for countries to meet their biodiversity protection commitments, while at the same time working in partnership with countries, other NGOs, and indigenous communities to offer the best practices for how conservation can be accomplished in a way that's both equitable, ecologically representative, and durable over time. 
And what is the overall scope and, and overall magnitude of the conservation initiatives um, that you at TNC are driving? And how far are you at the moment? So the 30 by 30 agenda is extremely ambitious, as we said, and it takes political will, it takes new science, it takes community buy-in, and it takes financing to make it happen. So here at the Nature Conservancy, we are engaging in all of those aspects of the work. It really requires working at a scale that is unprecedented. And I believe that global organizations like ours are really well positioned to do so. Now, funding ocean conservation and climate change adaptation activities is difficult for a lot of countries. But the challenge is acutely, particularly for those that are highly dependent on vulnerable marine resources. And what we see is that many of these governments often experience high debt burdens, and that limits really their ability to invest in marine conservation activities. And it just perpetuates their vulnerability to natural disasters and economic downturns. So we developed a conservation model that is called Blue Bonds for Conservation, and that is designed to address that particular finance challenge. It's one of the most successful experiences that we've had to date with the Nature Conservancy, and it's such a simple concept. We help restructure a nation's debt in exchange for commitments to protect coastal areas. So I'll share one example from Belize. Last year, we helped the country restructure $553 million of the country's debt, generating approximately $4 million per year in support of marine protection and tripling Belize's budget for ocean conservation programs over the next two decades. In return, Belize committed to protecting 30% of its oceans. So Belize is really showing that when we work together combining science, global financing, and partnerships from the national to the community level, that we can achieve enormous wins for people in nature. I also want to highlight another example from Canada, where the Nature Conservancy has worked with partners to help secure the Great Bear Rainforest Agreement. This is an agreement between First Nations in Canada and the provincial Canadian government to create a series of new protected areas across British Columbia of old-growth boreal forests. These are some of the most important for us on the planet. In that agreement, we at the Nature Conservancy raised $39 million in philanthropic funding. We then leveraged this with additional funding, resulting in a $120 million fund that is evenly divided between an endowment to support conservation and a sinking fund for sustainable economic development. As a result of this, 45 new businesses and 767 new permanent jobs have been created in First Nation communities. Thank you for laying out the order of magnitude of the sizes of projects you're financing. Obviously, financing these huge projects must be a major challenge. Sam, which financing mechanisms are usually applied in such cases? Yes, as Marianne said, it is an enormous financing challenge. The, no one source of funding is going to provide the finance we need to address these issues. So there's a spectrum of options that you have available. The first of these typically we go to is philanthropy and that people will be donating money to help conserve, you know, whether it's attractive land or a coastal region. Part of the challenge with this is that you know there's not enough philanthropic capital to usually cover the needs of a project over the duration or the lifetime of the land. You really need to think about this in 
a term that you, you, know, you can call the project financing for permanence. And that's a key part of the solution. This is looking at the holistic set of costs that are going to be needed to both restore their land as well as to manage it kind of in perpetuity. Now, the, the philanthropy is only one piece of it. The second piece of it people typically go to is, is public funding. And we need to find mechanisms to build in financing for conservation as part of other policy measures. And what that could be in one example is, you know, a land tax. There's a very good example in one area that uh, I've been involved in a little bit, which is when they have real estate transactions, they actually tack on an additional one and a half percent fee that goes to a land bank. And that land bank is actually used to conserve property on this particular region. And, you know, that means that as the, the growth happens, it also then is making the conservation happen and allow the conservation to grow. And this has resulted in this particular area of, of conservation of more than half the available land on this particular region. And, you know, these types of mechanisms are the kind of things that can go hand in hand together in public financing. And then the third area you can look at is in private finance and, you know, investors who are investing in different projects and in the investors, you know, there's a mix of what they expect in return. And so, you know, this is not the, you're not investing in a tech stock here, so you're never going to get that kind of returns, but it fits in a balanced portfolio where you actually want to do some good. And they need, we need to have a source of projects that blend both economic benefits, but also the conservation benefits and, and be able to measure those conservation benefits so that you can actually, re- the, the projects can report out on the benefits that they're providing and, and people can actually monetize the benefit that they're actually investing in. And then the fourth area is really commercial. And I think in, in many of the projects we've done with the Nature Conservancy, what we've found is that there are market-based solutions to many of these conservation problems. And so how can you blend the commercial interests from, from a particular stakeholder with the needs of that particular conservation effort. We've just completed a big project with the Nature Conservancy. It's called Pacific Island Tuna. And here we found unique ways to create an extended value chain all the way from the Marshall Islands through to the retail shelf that's a sustainable supply chain. And it conserves the the fisheries in the Marshall Islands. It's a sustainable brand that's attractive to consumers. And it allows for financing for a you know a very unique project that working together with a number of different organizations we've been able to put together. Thanks, Sam. Marianne, what have been the financing challenges in the past and which hurdles are you currently experiencing in financing these projects? So, Stefan, some of our biggest challenges are the time aspects, first of all. Some of these deals that we've been talking about, the blue bonds in Belize or in the Seychelles and some of the examples that Sam has mentioned, they take years. And right now, as I said in the beginning, we don't have years, we don't have decades, we have very short time to do this. So we need to accelerate the pace and the scale of really large scale, long lasting conservation around the globe. And that means that we also need to have a blend of philanthropic capital, public funding and investments, just like Sam laid it out. And from my perspective, from the Nature Conservancy, I would say that global conservation groups have long worked in coalition, but this ambitious 30-30 goal requires partnerships at a whole different level. It means partnerships between organizations, between 
governments and also with investors. So it means that we need to raise money together with all sectors and also ensure that all the right voices have a seat at the table. So one challenge is how can we do this faster in years and not think about decades? I also want to point out that we need to continue to explore more ways that private sector can contribute to the financing of biodiversity. Sam laid out some great mechanisms that we have deployed in the past. And I believe that there are some like the blue bonds that are really successful models that can go to scale globally, but they're not enough. So I would encourage us and the private sector to think through what other types of innovative financing can we create to reach their 3030 goals and to just enhance biodiversity conservation and climate mitigation really at large. Some of those examples that are worth exploring are around natural infrastructure insurance, for example. The Nature Conservancy and Swiss Re developed uh, the world's first coral reef insurance in Mexico. And now we're exploring insurance for other ecosystems like mangroves or wetlands. Another example can be equity and debt funds. We have an example now of the Africa Conservation and Communities Fund, which aims to raise about 75 to 100 million from investors to provide loans to tourism operators to help recover from the pandemic, but at the same time contributing to the protection of 700,000 square kilometers of African landscapes and support 120,000 community members. And this fund often depend on anchor investments from a development finance institution. So again, we're talking blended finance. Another example are funds aimed to catalyze innovative finance mechanisms for the expansion of soy and cattle with deforestation and conversion-free principles. We know that agriculture is one of the biggest threats to conservation worldwide. So these funds, they wouldn't create mechanisms that directly serve the farmer, but what they do is they offer financing services such as first loss, subordinated debt, anchor equity, investments for new funds, and underwriting a risk. So again, we have to broaden all the types of vehicles that we use to incubate promising new solutions. Carbon credit is another quickly emerging market. We have lots of experience with forests, but now we're also looking at blue carbon for mangroves and wetlands, soil carbon, fire carbon, like they're doing in Australia. So the major question, though, is how do we scale and mainstream some of these mechanisms? And lastly, another financing instrument I wanted to mention that is increasingly piloted, including here in Europe and the UK, are biodiversity credits. So that is also a way of improving the biodiversity of a given area through sustainable water and land practices, and they can be used to offset a business negative impact on biodiversity and eventually can also be traded as carbon credits do. So if we could find a way to form a biodiversity credit and to capture nature-based value, this will obviously be a significant development for finance. So a lot of the value created in biodiversity is currently unaccountable in many of the business models. Stefan, can we ask Mariana to follow up on her comments? I, I found some of her, you know, her ideas are actually really innovative and I think are the, the types of mechanisms that are going to make this this future work. You know, Marianne, can you explain for people just a little bit more detail about how do these, like the coral insurance, how does that work? Because I think that's the type of thing that we're going to need to find ways to kind of broaden the scale and scope of those types of activities. Yes. So the world's first reef insurance was a concept that was developed between Swiss Re and the Nature Conservancy. And we looked at that 
value that reefs have in protecting infrastructure and fish habitat and other values on the coast of Mexico. We developed then a reef insurance that would guarantee that if there was a hurricane hitting that reef, that there would be a payout to restore the reef. So of course, the insurance company need to understand the value of the reef in monetary terms, and they came up with a payment model. And those who bought the insurance are actually the tourism operators along in the municipalities of Tulum in Quintana Roo in Mexico. And just one year after the insurance was purchased, there was a hurricane that hit the reef. And the policy paid out almost $800,000 that would be used to offset the costs of repairing those insured reefs. So immediately after you know, issuing uh, the insurance, we saw in action that it happened and the cost payout, and now they're working to restore the reef. So Sam, what would you suggest? Um, which role could private sector finance play in this respect, also to accelerate and, and to mainstream conservation finance? Yeah, I think part of the solution that for these types of problems also is outside of finance, we need to also work on policy changes that will allow us to make more attractive investments. Frequently, you know, there are projects where we know we need to make changes, but due to local regulations in a particular jurisdiction, it makes it very expensive for you know, a commercial enterprise or you know, a project to actually go in place. And the costs of these projects are enormous. And so in order to bring those costs down, we need to engage regulators so they can actually make changes to make it easier to include conservation in these types of work. An example, we looked at revitalizing the forests in California to reduce wildfire risk. And there's 10 million acres of forest in California that's privately held land that we could be using. And, and there's another 10 million of public land that are threatened every year as the wildfire season starts. But the regulatory body or regulatory policy set that's out there makes it very difficult to go in and clean up those particular forests. And the investments needed, it's typically you know $3,000 an acre just to go in and clean up a forest. Nobody's going to be able to fund that out of pocket. There's no set of investors that's actually going to be able to write that big a check. And so we have to have ways to bring those costs down by you know making it more, eliminating the restrictions that they're putting on the different maintenance models that they want to use. And then using that as a, now that it's more attractive, being able to bring in investors to actually fund the enterprises that will go in and create the businesses in these particular forests, things like small scale timber mills. And you know, I was talking with someone the other day, uh, there's an investor group that's trying to develop a small diameter timber mill up in Northern California so that they can actually use the residue and, and the stuff that needs to be cleaned up in the forest to lower the load of burnable fuel in the forest. They want to use that to make oriented strand board plywood. And the regulations from the EPA and others in the state of California itself and how they manage those forests makes that a very difficult and expensive challenge. And so they've been working with the regulators and TNC has been involved in this as well with some of the work that they've been doing as a way to bring kind of everyone to the table and figure out how do we actually solve this problem. So Sam, you, again, you've laid out great examples of some innovative financing. And I wanted to pick up on one that you mentioned, which we call PFPs, which means Project Finance for Permanence. And of course, I come from a conservation organization, and we have a lot to learn from the finance sector. And about 
15 years ago, we had a banker from Wall Street come to TNC and he said, I don't understand why in conservation you always think short term. You come up with some project financing for one to two years and then you have to go out and raise more money and then you are always in fundraising mode. And then he said, at Wall Street, we don't do that. At Wall Street, what we do is we bring in all the financing and we do one single close. So he spurred some new thinking about how we can bring a suite of financing strategies and policy commitments, right, and government commitments into one single close. And the first deal that was done like that was in Costa Rica back in 2008. And since then, there have been deals in Canada and Bhutan, and now there are other PFPs around the world. And we're seeing that this concept of bringing all the stakeholders, as you said, Sam, to the table to negotiate and to agree on these very bold commitments and ensure that all the financing streams come together at one single close is extremely powerful. So are you planning to use this concept also in future based on the experiences you just made? And as an outlook, which projects are on the horizon? And yeah, can you elaborate a bit on the expected conservation outcome and what is their financing volume? Yes, Stefan, uh, thank you for asking. We see that there is global uptake, both of blue bonds and a project for permanence and a range of other financing mechanisms. And it's very exciting for us at TNC to see this happen because as we've stated before, it is the only way to reach our target by 2030. And at the Nature Conservancy, we have also set a series of very ambitious goals so we have said that by 2030, we will have conserved 4 billion hectares of oceans, which is 10% of the world's oceans, 650 million hectares of land, and one kilometer of rivers. And we will have avoided or mitigated or sequestered three gigatons of CO2 per year. That is the same as 650 million cars off the road per year and help 100 million people adapt to climate change. This is an extremely bold ambition. And it can only be achieved by engaging in exactly those types of financing strategies that we have discussed in this podcast. So on the horizon, we have a series of both blue bonds uh, that we are currently advancing, including in the Caribbean. And we have a series of countries in sub-Saharan Africa where we're working on a combination of both Project for Permanence and blue bonds together. So we are looking at, for the next few years, of raising at least $4 billion in capital to make this happen. Marianne, I think that the projects you're listing are, are very exciting. I mean, this is a, you know, I think this is the future of conservation and how we're going to be successful at meeting these challenges. Hmm. And I can see lots of opportunities like the ones you're describing out there, you know, for continuing to kind of try to a achieve this 30 by 30 hmm. goal. Perhaps... You could say with your experience, right, in Bain from finance, we talked about that we don't have a clear business case for private sector investments, right, in biodiversity. Yeah. So the food and ag sector is pretty clear, but for other sectors, not so much. So I wonder if you can also, in a sense, say something about the need for the sector as well to help, you know, uh, think through what, uh, what some in new investment opportunities might be. I think that the mechanisms you're talking about, Marianne, are appropriate in a lot of different places. You know, for example, we've just completed some work with the Nature Conservancy in the islands of Hawaii, where we're looking at a long-term restoration program. And 
part of the work we did with TNC was actually exactly what you're describing is what is the holistic framework for financing and how much is going to be needed? What are the different sources? And a big part of that was looking at all in costs. And so beginning to think about, yes, here's what it takes to restore the areas, you know, the different types of landscapes that are in the space that we're talking about. And then going through the the whole broad list of different mechanisms, figuring out which ones actually could provide a part of the capital that's needed. And then also building in longer term, if we're going to continue to manage this property forever, how do we maintain it, you know, and build those costs in? Once we had the holistic picture of costs, then it allowed us to start to think in kind of unique ways with each of the different stakeholders. And so, for example, engaging with the finance community to figure out which parts of this are attractive to them and, you know, how can, where are the places that they'd be willing to invest and what would it take to make that an attractive investment? You know, working with the the agricultural interests on the islands to begin to think about what are the commercial opportunities? You know, could you add coal wood forests to the grazing lands that they have for the cattle and actually create an alternative source of income there. And one of the insights for me is a lot in this was that a lot of times these types of projects say, oh, we'll just, we'll go plant a a unique forest and we can harvest some of that timber over the long term and that's going to pay for it. But that then runs right into the problem that you described, which is it takes a lot of years to grow a forest. And so you need capital now. How are people, and, and that's a very long time horizon for investments there. So what else you know, what are the other mechanisms you can have to provide financing in the short term while that long term plays out and actually starts to become viable and also beginning to think about market mechanisms and the world demand for coal wood isn't that high. And so we can't just create a giant forest and expect that everyone's going to go buy that wood and then use it. So we have to build in some, you know, a, a portfolio of solutions for these types of things. But this is the kind of thinking and the types of projects that I find very inspirational from all the work we do with the Nature Conservancy around the world. I agree. Yeah. Well, Marianne and Sam, this sounds like a call for action for the finance industry. Yeah. And also excellent closing words for this podcast session. Thank you both for the insights on this fascinating topic of deploying finance for conservation outcomes and associated business opportunities for private sector players. Thank you, Stefan. And of course, thank you on the speakers and headsets for listening to this episode of our Bain Sustainability Academy. For more information and further episodes, please visit our webpage, bain.com. Before you go, we would appreciate your feedback on what you liked or what we could have done better. Thanks and stay tuned. Bain Sustainability Academy. Make sure you don't miss it. Subscribe now.